Amen. Good morning. Ooh, that was stronger this time. Y'all are getting used to it. Good morning. It is so good to see you guys back. I know some of you have been in and out. Some of you had that first taste of summer vacation or summer camp, wherever you've been. And we're so glad that you are here today. It doesn't get old reminding us to gather together. Um, the excitement hasn't gone downhill since Easter, so it's really good to see you guys. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a really good week to be here because we are in week three of a sermon series called Creed, that we are going over the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creedal or belief statements of the early church. The idea was that we would take the summer and we would actually dive deep into what we believe when we say that we are Christians. The Chances are that most of us go through our lives not really digging deep into what those beliefs are. And it's really easy to do. There are bigger fish to fry, apparently. And so we don't get down deep into what we actually believe. So we've taken these last few weeks, and last week we started with the first line of the creed. I believe in God the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We talked about who God was and what that meant for us. And this week, this week we really get into it because this week we're actually covering a whole two-thirds of the creed. If you look at it, it's a whole two-thirds of the creed talks about one person. You see there's this line at the beginning about God the Father. And then this line at the end and a few more lines about the Holy Spirit and the work that God is doing in the world. But then in the middle... This whole two-thirds is about Jesus. And that makes sense, right? I mean, obviously, when we think about what our faith means, the central question of our faith is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? And actually, for the first 400 years of Christianity, people didn't have a finite answer. Christians would argue back and forth about what it meant to think about Jesus, to think about this person who had been God. They spent 400 years debating this question. And it's kind of ironic when you think about it, because when we think of modern day, the question of who is Jesus really is kind of last on our minds. When we think about religious circles or faith, the things that we argue about, the things that we talk the most about are kind of tertiary issues like how do you take communion or how do you baptize people or who can get married? These are the questions we're talking about. But the early church understood that those questions, while important, they weren't the central thing that we based our lives around. They understood that the main question of our faith was who is Jesus? And it makes sense. Because if we don't understand who Jesus is, then we don't understand who God is. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand what our lives are supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing in them. Jesus is the lens in which we're supposed to see everything. If we don't have a good answer and a good understanding of who is Jesus, then we don't really understand our faith. So today, we're going to take some time to answer that question. We'll look at the creed itself, but we'll also look at scripture that perhaps the early apostles drew their creed from and see if we can better answer this question of who is Jesus. 
And if I'm really honest, there's some irony in me preaching on this because for years, Jesus was not a really easy figure for me to understand. I was super lucky that when I was young, I had this predisposition to understand who God was. I got God the Father. I understood that there was a supreme power, that someone had made the world. Faith in that, that was easy. I got that. But this idea of Jesus, a rabbi from first century Palestine, who did all these crazy, miraculous things, it just didn't, it didn't really connect with me. I wasn't sure if it was true or not. I spent years trying to figure it out. I didn't get exactly who Jesus was supposed to be. And when I turned for answers to other people, a lot of the answers that I got was something along the lines of this hymn. And I don't know if y'all sung this. When y'all were younger in church, it's called In the Garden. And it says like, and he walks with me and he talks with me. That song, that idea of Jesus being friend, Jesus being the person who walks with you, that's what I was taught. That's who Jesus was. Jesus is supposed to be our friend. But that answer wasn't enough for me. I couldn't understand how someone who was supposed to be my friend also was supposed to be crucified, died, rose again, and God. Those things didn't make sense to me. But what I understand now that I didn't understand then is I didn't have a full understanding of who the person of Jesus is. You see, so often some of our doubts or some of our questions come from the fact that we try to combine two categories of Jesus that in theology, in the study of God, we separate. You see, in theology, we actually separate the person of Jesus and the work that Jesus did on the cross. We separate those things. And in fact, the creed does too. So if we look at what the creed says in this part about Jesus, it starts, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Then it continues, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitted at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Let's go back to that first slide. Do you see, though, that there's this one line at the top and then there's this whole litany of other actions that Jesus did? That litany of actions, that's Jesus' work. And we'll talk about that later in July. But today, today we can't talk about Jesus' work without talking about the person that he was. And everything we need to know about the person who Jesus was is contained in these 10 words. What's interesting to me is that when the apostles were making this creed, those other lines, the ones about Jesus' work, those were kind of non-controversial. They agreed on those. That was an easy list. But these 10 words, this took a lot of blood and sweat and tears to come up with these 10 words. And there was a lot of argument about these 10 words, so much so that a couple hundred years after it was written, they had to write a new creed that clarified these 10 words. It's called the Nicene Creed. I don't know if you've heard of it. But they were so controversial, these 10 words. But they also hold everything we could ever want to know about who Jesus is. So today, we're just going to look at these 10 words. And specifically, we're going to look at the names that are given. Because you guys know by now that names in ancient cultures were incredibly important. 
they weren't just something unique you picked for your kid. It was, it was more like a title. It was something that described who you were and what you did in the world. So the names that are chosen for Jesus, they were chosen intentionally in this line. And we're going to take them one by one, looking at the last one, our Lord in particular. But let's start. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with the name Jesus. Jesus was a given name. And sometimes we like to imagine that Jesus must have been the only Jesus in his town, but that's just not true. Jesus was a super common name. It's Yeshua in Hebrew, Joshua in English. It was a really common name. Lots of Jews gave this name to their sons. There were tons of Jesuses running around in Palestine in the day. It wasn't unique to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Then why in the world would the authors of the creed decide that Jesus was important to put in this creed? Well, let me tell you why. You see, at the time of the early Christians, why they spent 400 years debating this, there were lots of people who had lots of different thoughts about who Jesus was, and not all of them were correct. And there was a particular group who thought that man, if we really are going to believe in this Jesus guy, then we, we can't believe he was human. If he were human, then he couldn't be God. That doesn't make sense. So let's just make up a new thing. Maybe, maybe he actually wasn't a person. Maybe he didn't actually have a body. Maybe he was a ghost and like you could go up and poke through him and they actually believed that. They had this, whole, and they were popular. It wasn't this small group of people. They believed that Jesus must not have been human. But the apostles in this creed say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, Jesus was human. He was from Nazareth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He ran around. He scraped his knee. He fought with his brothers and sisters. He went to the temples and came back on festivals. He learned to trade. He grew up. He was human. And that was important. That was important because if we don't believe that Jesus is human then we can't believe that he died because gods don't die. And if Jesus didn't die, then what would it mean for us and the cross? So the apostles intentionally put that name, his given name Jesus in there, even though it was a common name, because they wanted to show whoever said this after them that we believe that Jesus was a particular human and was completely human, fully human. But they didn't stop there on purpose. And they added another name, Christ or Christus. Christus in Greek means anointed, but it's taken from a Hebrew word, Meshach, Messiah. It's a version of Messiah that they have translated into Greek. And why is that important? Why is it important that the authors of the Apostles' Creed really cared that we knew that Jesus was Messiah because they wanted to connect Jesus to all these other stories that had come before him. For years, people have been talking about a Jewish leader who would come and who would make peace among the kingdoms. They, they talked about this person who would come and unite the tribes of Israel, this savior, and they called him Messiah. Well, we didn't want to believe as early Christians, they, they didn't want to believe that 
Jesus was just the separate thing from the Jewish tradition. No, he was a part of it. They wanted to yell from the rooftops, don't you see this guy, Jesus Christ, he was the fulfillment of everything you Jews have learned and preached and talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years. This guy, Jesus Christ, is both fully human and the Messiah, fully God. You need to understand that they're both together. It's a mystery that we as humans can't totally understand, but they wanted us to at least know in the names what was important about Jesus. Both a human from Nazareth and the Messiah from Jewish tradition. Let's move on to that third one, his only son. And for this one, we need a little bit more context. We know, obviously, that son means son of God. But here's something you don't know that's really important in this creed, and it's important when it was the context that it was written. Sometimes it seems ludicrous that people would call themselves son of God in our, in our time, but it was actually like fairly common for emperors and rulers to call themselves sons of God. It defended their lineage. So there were lots of people, including Augustus Caesar, who we'll talk about later, who claimed himself to be the son of God. And remember, Caesar was in power when Jesus was born. And so when people are writing this, do you see that word only? There's clarification there. He's saying, look, whoever's writing this is saying, I know that there are other people who are gonna claim to be the sons of God. I know that they rule you. I know that they govern over you. But I wanna be clear that Jesus Jesus is the actual son of God, the true son. He's the only son of Yahweh. He's the son of the Jewish God. And in that sonship, there is something really important that they will try to argue about and talk about for years and years to come. But in this creed statement, what they're saying is that Jesus is the only true son of God. And now we're going to move on to our last one. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. And it's funny because it's kind of the simplest one, Lord. I mean, we call other things Lord still. And certainly at the time, Lord just meant master or sir. It was like a way to address people formally. It showed some authority. It actually wasn't that unique. But then why in the world did they include it in the creed? It's also interesting that Lord is the name that Jesus is referred to the most in the New Testament, by a lot. 250 times the word Lord is used to describe Jesus. It seems that early Christians understood something about the word Lord that felt really important to them. In fact, when early Christians used to greet each other, like first century, the first thing they would say to each other is they would greet each other and they would say, Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's all they would say. Jesus is Lord. That summed up everything that they wanted the other person to know about them. Jesus is Lord. So what is it about that word Lord that we need to understand? What is it that we've missed by focusing too much 
on this idea of the friend of Jesus? What have we missed by not thinking about the word Lord? I'm going to make an argument that I think that this particular term and this particular creed was put in there for political reasons. And for some of us, that makes us like our stomach hurt a little bit because we are so used to separating out religion and politics. That's the norm. But in ancient Rome, the idea of having separate spheres of religion and politics would have been nuts. No one did that. Religion and politics weren't separate arenas. They were actually complementary. They worked within each other. In fact, when Julius Caesar died infamously on the Ides of March, a few, few days after, there was this comet up in the sky, and it stayed there for seven days. So the Roman senators who killed him started to think, oh Lord, what did we do? This guy must have been a god. And before this, lots of people had like, said that emperors were gods, but now they really started to believe, oh my gosh, Julius Caesar must have been a god. And then Julius Caesar's son, Augustus, he started to understand how that might be really helpful to him. If emperors started to say that they were gods, then how much power could they control? They could go out and conquer all these lands and tell all the people that they were gods, that they needed to be worshipped. And suddenly, it wasn't just a matter of taxation. Taxation was worship. Religious identity was a political currency. And so Augustus held on to this idea. And he started this tradition that emperors of Rome would be considered gods. He put up altars everywhere, like altars of himself with an image. He required his subjects to worship there. They had parades in his honor. He made little coins in the currency. Do you know what it said on it? It had his head. And then underneath it said, Divi Filius. Son of God. It was prolific, this idea that the emperor must be God. And you know what I find really interesting is that Augustus required folks to call him two names. Divi Filius, it was a title, Son of God, and Lord. Those were the titles that Augustus wanted his citizens to call him, Son of God and Lord, you can see how maybe I think that this creed was more than just a religious statement, was more than just talking about Jesus as son of God and Lord. There was something else going on, and to help us understand a little bit better, we're going to look at Colossians, a letter that was written to a small church in the middle of Turkey, or modern-day Turkey, was called Colossae. And we're going to, so I need you to get out your phones. You know it's me preaching. So get out your phones, all of you. Kids, if you don't have a phone, look on with your parents. Google Colossians 1. I'm using the CEB version, which is common English, but you can use whatever version you want. Okay, find Colossians 1. It's in the New Testament. Kiddos, if you are looking it up. And we're going to scroll down to verse 15. And for some of your Bibles, you'll notice it's set apart, right? It's kind of indented, which shows that it's a poem. And for the New Testament, when they're poems like that, most likely they're hymns. 
And what's so cool about this is to imagine that this was an early, early hymn that Christians sang together, one of the earliest that we have on record. And so you can imagine Christians would come together and they would say this hymn. They would sing it to each other. And so we're going to read the hymn together. And we're going to see how maybe this hymn meant something deeper than just talking about religion. So I'm going to start in verse 15. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth. The things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Let's stop there real quick. So you can imagine there's this group of early Christians who are beginning to get persecuted for their beliefs. So they're probably in some type of cave. And they're singing this song in the midst of a Roman empire that is starting to conquer everyone who opposes them. And they're starting to crucify those who are opposing them. And people are starting to see what it's going to mean for the Roman emperor to be in charge of them. And they're really poor because the Roman empires took all of the grain to the citizens of Rome who they cared about more. And so those who are peasants were left with hardly anything. And they would sing this song. Do you see it? It says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. So in a world where the images of Caesar were everywhere, on these coins, on these banners, in these parades, Christians were singing, no, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And when there was these myths in which the emperor is nothing less than the son of God because of his lineage, the Christians sing Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Not Caesar. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Let's go to that next line, part of 16, verse 16. Whether there are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things and all things are held together in him. Do you see that now? How it's kind of this act of sedition? In a culture where it was a norm to assume that the emperor was God, even if that meant that the socioeconomic and political and military structures were oppressing people, you still believe that the emperor was God? Christians proclaim that no, 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 all those powers and the rulers and the thrones and the dominions, they're all subject to Christ's rule, not Caesar's, not Rome. And in the face of ideology that characterizes Rome as the force of good, because that's how Rome sold itself, right? We'll protect you. We'll keep the barbarians at the edges out. Don't worry about them. That's our job. Christians are singing, no, no, we know who holds together all things. We know who is actually in charge here. And it isn't Caesar. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then Caesar isn't. If Jesus has all the dominions and rulers, all the powers in the world that are evil under him, then Caesar doesn't. The actual Lord, the one who is master, is not Caesar. It is Jesus. 
And they sang in that cave, and I can imagine it being bolder than usual, but also a little scared, because they knew that the implications of what they were saying. It isn't just an adoration of God, it's something deeper. Let's keep going, because the hymn doesn't stop there. On verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. You see, Rome, Rome said that they were the head, the actual city. That's why they got all the grain and all the money. Rome, the city, was the center, and its citizens were the center. That was where all power was supposed to be located. But in this verse, what the Christians are saying is, no, it isn't, it isn't that big city that we send our money to that is the power in the world. Christ is the power, and the actual body, the actual one who does work in the world, it's this little meeting of a small group of Christians in a church in a cave in first century Palestine. We are the actual people who can do good things in the world because we have been empowered by our head, who was the true Lord Jesus. Do you see how the hymn is flipping everything on its head? It's saying they say it's Rome, but we say it's you. This marginalized group of people hiding in a cave, you are the actual thing that matters here on earth. And then the hymn concludes, because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. That word peace is used intentionally because the biggest selling point of the Roman Empire was this idea that I'm sure you've heard of called Pax Romana. This idea that there would be peace, that there would be protection, there wouldn't be war. That Rome, the emperor, would protect as God all of those lands that he conquered. But we all know now how that peace was achieved. It was achieved by crosses, littering the landscape of ancient Rome, saying no to the opposition and squishing anyone who dared speak against. The empire of Rome was built with blood. But in this hymn, in this hymn, the Christians sing about a different kind of Lord who also established a kingdom through blood but it wasn't blood of its victims, it was blood of its Lord. It was a whole different sovereignty altogether, a whole different empire, something that the Christians were singing because they believed in, despite the powers of empire outside the doors. They're saying, no, I, I don't believe that Rome or Caesar, that they're the final say in this world. What the final say is, is a different kind of Lord, a different kind of master. There's um, this old altar that Augustus built in Pergamon, which is a church in, in ancient Greece. And they moved that altar to Berlin, and you can go see it now. 
And Augustus' picture is on it, and underneath is his favorite title, Divi Filius, Son of God. But on it, there's also two lines of graffiti. Someone had come, probably in the middle of the night, and painted two lines over the title Divi Filius in the symbol of a cross. Because what the early Christians understood was that there are going to be people and places and ideas that are going to claim to be the Son of God, Lord of your life. There are going to be things that you don't expect in this world that are going to tell you that they are greater than God. But what it means to believe when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is that there is only one Lord of our life. There is only one Divifilius in our lives. And to him, we can give freely everything that we have. Our lives, our kids, our bank accounts, our futures. We can give him everything because unlike Caesar, he doesn't work in the traditional notion of power. He works to reverse all that we understand so that we may be given what is good, that he may protect us truly from the forces of evil and not just a false promise like Caesar gave. Today, we're going to say the creed again and we're gonna say that line, I believe in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord. And when we say it, my hope today is that you make your own cross out of graffiti over all those things in your life that demand that you make them lords, that you understand that when you stand up and say that creed, that you're saying it with millions of Christians before you who have lived through different circumstances about what it means to be Christian, but who all hold the belief that Jesus is our Lord. So let us say the Apostles' Creed together. We all stand up. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Let me pray for us as we move on in worship. Lord of our lives, God, we're so thankful to stand. Stand in the place of tradition of Christians before us. To understand what it means to live our lives differently to make different choices than everyone else, to make our own crosses, because we understand what that cross means to us. 
Lord, we understand that if we say yes to you, we say no to a lot of things, but we also understand that in that yes, we find joy and peace and protection and goodness and all the things that we long for in our lives. Lord, be with us this week and the weeks to come. Teach us and reveal to us where you want us to say no and where we need to say a more emphatic yes. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.